Totally original and always captivating. Enemy. This is one you should try and hear. Melody Maker. It's an uncanny masterpiece. Pete Townsend. The Who. A brilliant mixture of melody and freakout, fast and slow, atmospheric and energetic. Disco Music Echo. In the Court of the Crimson King combines aspects of many musical forms to create a surreal work of force and originality. Rolling Stone. King Crimson's debut album is arguably the album that started the progressive rock movement in 1969, writing music that would influence future prog rock giants in the 70s like Yes, Pink Floyd, Genesis and Rush. The album had a massive following and can be found on the top spots of prog rock albums of all time. Upon its release until now, it was mostly sung in high praises, as you heard earlier, excluding a review from Robert Kreisgauer who called the album Ersatz Shit. So as a fan of prog rock, do I sit amongst the majority of people who venerate this record, or do I align my views more with Robert Kreisgau? Is this album as timeless as people think, or has it faded over the time? Are King Crimson really the creators of the progressive rock sound? All this will be answered in the retro review of King Crimson's 1969 album, In the Court of the Crimson King. Sometimes in music history, there comes a record so groundbreaking that it shatters all the boundaries and starts a whole new genre of music. The musician's ability to leap headfirst into the unknown can spur a movement as bands scramble to adjust their sound and it leaves in wake a number of contemporary artists wanting to emulate this style either out of a creative spur or a chance to cash in on a new fad. In modern history, there may have been only 20 or so times this has happened. It's extremely rare to shift the paradigm so quickly, and yet here we are talking about this mammoth album by prog rock alumni King Crimson. In 2015, Rolling Stone magazine ranked it as the second best prog rock album of all time, only beaten by Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. The album also made its appearance in the 2005 book by Robert Dimery called 1001 Albums You Must Listen To Before You Die. And that's the way I found out about this album. So let's get into the band's history. By 1967, brothers Michael and Peter Giles were professional musicians respectively performing with various bands in Dorset, England. But they wanted to start their own band together and placed an ad for a singer-organist. The response they received was from the future guitarist Robert Fripp, who was not a singer but was interested in joining the band, and together they formed Gills, Gills and Fripp releasing a record in 1968 called The Sheerful Insanity of Gills, Gills and Fripp. This record was a foray into the psychedelic 60s pop rock sound largely present at the time, and the album received mediocre success. The group would soon recruit other musicians for their next album, with Ian McDonald being brought in to perform keyboard duties. With Ian's inclusion, he brought his then-girlfriend Judy Dibel for vocals and roadie Peter Sinfield. Although Judy's tenure with the band was short-lived, it was Peter's inclusion that shifted their style. In his own words, he was brought in as their pet hippie, showing them where to shop for their styles at the time, writing lyrics for songs, performing lighting duties at shows, and even coming up with the name King Crimson for the band. Now around this time, Peter Gill decided to lead the band, and Robert recommended guitarist and singer Greg Lake to replace him. Now there are conflicting stories regarding Peter Gill's departure and how it happened, and it depends on who is being asked. 
According to brother Michael, Peter wanted to continue writing more psychedelic poppy tunes and was getting frustrated with their lack of success, as well as the band's venture into other musical genres. Robert on the other hand stated that the addition of Greg Lake was an ultimatum, either replace Peter or himself. It's uncertain who is right, and maybe there is a mixture of truths from both parties, however the result is the same and Peter was replaced by Greg on bass duties. With the band rounded out, they would set about recording material for their upcoming album. In 1968, Robert Fripp would attend a concert at the Marquee Club in London. The band that was set to perform on this night was known as Clouds, or the 123, and they would become very influential, not only with Robert Fripp, but also on the whole musical scene. Now, this sounds like a throwaway line with a band no one has probably heard of, but I would be remiss if I didn't mention it. Clouds of the 123 were a staple act at the Marquee Club and would usually cover various pop songs reworked into a then unknown style that was sometimes very unrecognisable to the original piece. Most notably, they would perform covers of their favourite musicians with Paul Simon's America and David Bowie's I Dig Everything. Other musicians who attended these shows would include Rick Wakeman, Keith Emerson, and even David Bowie, who stated that their keyboardist, Billy Ritchie, was a genius and loved their cover of his song. Robert left the club in awe and would incorporate his material with more classically inspired melodies for their upcoming album. And on the 13th of January in 1969, the band would first start rehearsing at Fulham Palace Cafe as King Crimson. The opening track for this album is the one that sets the mood for what to expect here on out. A loudly wicked tune plays out for the opening bars accompanied by the entire band bursting out of the gates. Guitars, bass, drums, organs and even saxophones before giving way to a staccato guitar riff. The vocals are rather minimal here with heavy distortion overlaid on the track giving what must have felt like a very futuristic sound for the time. This is the perfect opener track for this band to show off their jam skills as the bass line plucks along furiously accompanied by at times off kelter and jumpy drum beats. It really feels like a jazz improv piece and you can really hear the new influence in the first few minutes. An interesting note with this song is that it was a protest piece about the Vietnam War that was raging at this time. I mean, if you asked me to list a whole bunch of anti-Vietnam war songs, I wouldn't even consider this tune amongst my list. This is perhaps due to the awe-inspiring band effort on offer, but this song has the musicianship that overshadows its message with all kinds of chaotic medleys going on. This tune is intriguing. Lyrically, it deals with some big philosophical questions that weren't common around this time in music and draws an interesting parallel between the subject matter and its representation within the track. 
The song also has enough space to be left to interpretation and is probably one of the most well-written songs on the album as the music feels poignant to accompany it. On the other hand, in my mind this song bores me. This song draws a lot of elements from that 60s music sound that I just don't really like and puts it all into this one tune. Harmonic vocal deliveries, mystical elements played over brass instrument sections, and an overall very slow pace. It just feels like a folksy psychedelic pop-esque tune that comes across as an early Bee Gees meets Simon Garfunkel tune. The only difference that separates this track from the aforementioned style is the jazzy drum beat heard throughout it, and the song lasts longer than 3 minutes. It's not really my jam and I usually skip this song on playthroughs. Some can be quite harrowing when you are listening to the lyrics. What is the measure of a man compared to what mark he leaves on this world? The build up for this song shows tremendous abilities within the band and while I didn't really like the track I Talk to the Wind, I find Epitaph to be quite a prominent song on this album. Somber in tone, yet powerfully resonating. Moonchild is the jam piece of this album. The actual song is a short poem and then a track of roughly 4 minutes long until it finally gives way for the band to just play whatever comes to their mind. Now look I've listened to a lot of jam pieces in my time and this is very reminiscent of avant-garde style of playing. It really feels as if the tape recorder was just left on and they were just doing warm-ups between songs. And this is what happened to be captured. You can hear it on albums such as Deep Purple in Rock on the bonus track version of that record. I don't particularly care for this jam piece. It's time for the namesake of this album, the 10 plus minute long song in the court of the Crimson King. For me, this is the essential King Crimson tune. The way that the vocal harmonies are performed during the chorus of the song is truly colossal in sound and when the song finally builds, it really does take you on a journey. With the bass line that works on the chromatic scale, it's easy to be swept into this part of the song. This for me is King Crimson's magnum opus song. Now I didn't know this until researching them, but a few months before the album's release, they would become one of the opening acts for the Rolling Stones on their live performance at Hyde Park. Clearly the band's sound had made an impact on the scene, enough to be asked to be an opening slot for... in front of around 250 to 500,000 people, depending who you ask, which would have helped get the name out of their band, especially for their debut release. There is multiple factors that go into making an album highly influential in music, and I firmly believe it comes down to right place, right time for most of these records. I'm not discrediting the band and stating that luck got them to where they are. In fact, one of the other driving factors, and the most important one of course, 
is the well-written record. King Crimson were not the founders of prog rock as many would say they are. That title deservedly goes to the 123, who truly pioneered this sound and its influence was clearly felt on the musicians who regularly attended these shows. Bands like Yes, King Crimson, Emerson Lake and Palmer and David Bowie were all influenced by this band and that should be noted when it comes to the history of prog rock. It seems unique that the bands they were influenced by, like David Bowie, would in turn be influenced by the very band themselves. Even Yes would cover the song America during live performances as an ode to the 123. As for In the Court of the Crimson King, well, they managed to pull off a Nirvana situation. What I mean by this is that they released a highly successful album which became massively influential to the genre's sound. In similar fashion to Nirvana's Nevermind, In the Court of the Crimson King became a staple of what to expect and its gravitas was felt by many musicians in this field. This record proved to be the lightning rod for the future of prog rock. One of the last factors that firmly roots a band's legacy is a short career. They would record and release seven studio albums between 1969 and 1974, with various lineup changes before going on hiatus in 74. They would reform six years later, but the groundwork had been set to cement their status as prog rock icons. As far as In the Court of the Crimson King goes, the list of bands and musicians that were influenced by this one record is monumental and of course the legacy is undeniable. This reads as a who's who of music but bands like Tool, Opeth, Between the Buried and Me, Enslaved, Mastodon, The Mars Volta, Primus, Fish, Mudvayne, Dream Theater, Porcupine Tree all cite this band as a highly influential sound. With Porcupine Tree, Stephen Wilson even assisting with the remixing of their back catalogue like he would do for Yes. The band would also influence many other musicians outside of the prog rock movement like Kurt Cobain, Bad Religion, Black Flag, Living Colour, The Who, Voivod, the Dillinger Escape Plan, and Neurosis. Living Colour would go on to even state that King Crimson's 80s material was a massive contribution to their own sound. I think to close out this segment, I will quote Pitchfork about this album. In the court of the Crimson King marks a vast fault line in the geology of rock music, refining a nascent genre into a pinnacle of the progressive rock form. I wanted to highlight the use of the word nascent from the previous quote, which is just coming into existence and displaying signs of future potential. It's a perfect word that sums up this album. On the other end of the spectrum, it was also just that. A style of music just coming into existence, not yet perfected, not as refined as it would become, and leaning heavily on the sounds of the day from the current psychedelic pop genre. I would call this record a fisher of the 1960s counterculture sound. It borrowed enough elements to retain the current sound heard of the time while simultaneously not conforming to that style and the length of music that was being played. I consider this album to be the sphinx of prog rock albums. It's so symbolic while concurrently reflecting visible signs of damage that time has bestowed upon it. 
a showmanship of what was, by creators almost long gone, overshadowed by future developments that simply outshine this one. I don't feel strongly for this album because there are simply better sounding albums that came out shortly after this one. I feel like the organs are starkly outdated even for this time, sounding more akin to bands that came before them like Hark and Prokel or some kind of gospel church tune. I guess I show a penchant towards musicians that use the Moog synthesizer in the prog rock field as that feels more like the essential sound for the early prog rock sound. It seems like a sin against me to talk so harshly of this album, but I feel it needs to be said. It's an overrated album that has some really cool tunes on it. Admittedly, I have never been highly impressed by the record, and it never blew me away when I first heard it, and it still doesn't to this day. The title track is amazing, and for me is the highlight of the album, accumulating in a tremendous build-up before the finale, but their most famous song, 21st Century Schizoid Man, is where I find myself aloft. The song has been covered so many times, from artists like Ozzy Osbourne to Bad Religion to Government Mule, and even sampled by Kanye West for his song Power. The fact that I've heard this track numerous times by many other artists before hearing the actual original version, I had already built it up in my mind so much that by the time I played it, this track felt kinda flat. I'll admit now King Crimson's version is the only way to hear it, and no other musician has really come close to capturing that sound, but it did take a while to come around to. One of the other problems I had leading up to this record was how late I left it. After spending a decade plus listening to Yes, Pink Floyd, Genesis, Porcupine Tree, and others that by the time I got around to this record it felt vastly different to the others in production and quality and this was quite a divergence of style that of course came over time due to technological improvements and really musical instruments changing. For one I find the drumming is on another level but it just sounds like it was recorded on a tin can or at least through one. The other issue I had was with the organs which I mentioned before. This style fell out of fashion of course and by the early 70s was replaced by keyboards, in particular the Moog synthesizer and the organs just sound very primitive in comparison. I've definitely spent enough time talking about this record and in a negative tone, but it's not all bad. I don't mind it but I'm not rushing to play it anytime soon. It's just low on my list of classical prog rock records. In the end I will give this album a score of 7.5 million chilies on the spicy scale with my favourite tracks being Epitaph and The Court of the Crimson King. Robert Kreisgau may have had a point in his review when he stated beware the forthcoming hype. After all, lots of musical outlets would change their tunes retrospectively after the success of this album to reflect themselves and the band in a more positive light. Being a music critic is a difficult path. Get it wrong and people will belittle you for scoring something they love incorrectly. Score it harshly and people will attack you. I do my reviews with my own score and try to explain why I didn't enjoy something for what others may love. Music is an opinion with no wrongs or rights. After all, what someone enjoys, others may not. Maybe my vision of the album is skewed due to all the points I raised before it, but I think even if I heard this album first before any of the others, I would still not care for it. In the space of the two years after this album's release, the prog rock scene progressed drastically to a completely different sound and style, and I can see why this album is the reason. 
I can recognise its brilliance and impact on the music scene, but to me it's an overrated album at the end of the day. And if someone asked me where to start on when it comes to the early prog rock albums, I would suggest many others in lieu of this one. Thank you very much for tuning in to this episode of Retro Reviews. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to leave a like and of course do the socials. If you can, also make sure to subscribe to our channel as we put out musical content several times a week. And as always, people, I hope you have a great day and stay spicy. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Live Listen Erased. And if you have enjoyed this episode, make sure you share it with all your friends. Don't forget to subscribe to our Chili Con Carnage crew so you can get notified for all the future videos that we put out, as we put out videos every Friday. Also, we are on Discord, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter over at Live Listen Erased, so make sure to tune in over there. And don't forget to like this video so that our manager can stay very happy.